Welcome to this episode in the Gibraltar Heritage Trust podcast series. I'm Alice Mascareñas, and in this podcast, we learn about the Gibraltarian community of the 18th century and concentrate on the trilogy of books written by well-known local historian Richard Garcia. Richard Garcia is a former civil servant who rose to the highest post of chief secretary. In retirement, he has dedicated his time to further researching the history of Gibraltar. With a number of books to his name, including The Postal History of Gibraltar, which is the authority on the history of Gibraltar stamps, he is well known for both his stamp and postcard collections. He has now published two books in the trilogy on the social history of Gibraltar in the 18th century. In the Shadow of the British Fortress of Gibraltar, Book 1 is called Forging a Civilian Community, 1704-1749, and Book 2 is called Ordinary Life in Peace and War, 1749-1783, and the last in the series will be published later this year. It's called The Phoenix Rises. did you want to write this book and this particular period in, in Gibraltar's history? Well, what really motivated me was that the general accounts of Gibraltar in the 18th century concentrate on the capture in 1704, the siege in 1727, and then nothing happens until the Great Siege in 1779, and after that, again, nothing happens until Trafalgar. And, of course, a huge amount was happening in terms of the ordinary people. So I wanted to redress the balance of these traditional histories by uh, trying to reveal an element of how Gibraltar grew as a civilian community after 1704 and under the British uh, from 1713, how it thrived, and despite adversity, did extremely well. I'm going to ask you a question that perhaps I almost know the answer to, but why do you think that the civilian population has never really been spoken about, it, never really been written about? I'm assuming it's because we're now getting more and more Gibraltarians involved in the history of Gibraltar. Partly that, but also because you need to look very, very deeply and very closely at what is out there in terms of original material in order to discover what people were doing, where people were coming from, how people were interacting, what the relations between the population in Gibraltar and nearby places like Spain and Morocco were. So it's not an easy job to do. It's very time-consuming and it requires access to original records which not everybody has. Now, we know that a lot of references in, in, early, in earlier books come from the Gibraltar Chronicle, but of course your first source couldn't have been the Gibraltar Chronicle. The, the, there were no newspapers uh, of a local character in the 18th century. It, the Gibraltar Chronicle, of course, came on the back of the creation of the Garrison Library, and that was right at the very, very end of the 18th century that that was thought about. So uh, you can't go to newspapers 
to uh, get information on what was happening in Gibraltar. You need to look at other sources. And of course, it's something I've been looking at for very many years, because writing these books is not something that can be done in five minutes. It's taken over 40 years of research. So where do you get your sources from? I went to two sources that had not been tapped hitherto, and which were very, very interesting. The first was the records of the birth, or rather baptisms, uh, burials or or deaths, and marriages in the Catholic uh, Church. Because those begin in 1704 and go right through the century and are mainly complete. Now, there's a huge amount of information contained within these registers because it's not just the name that's given, but very often, particularly in the early entries, it will describe where a person came from, uh, who the, the family were, sometimes the occupation of the person. So uh, if a person died, sometimes there were notes saying so-and-so was shot uh, on a ship in the bay. So you get much more information than just uh, a name and a date. So that was one set of records that had never really been studied. The other were the court records, which begin in the 1730s. And these are only the proceedings of the civil court, because the court at the time, when started, had no criminal jurisdiction. So these were the disputes between traders, between merchants, between people of a commercial character. So it gives you a completely different insight as to how Gibraltar was developing as a commercial centre. I think it's it's perhaps not thought of, um, certainly unknown, that even in, despite the fact that we were talking in the early years of times of war, there is a growing community. There is a community there that, that begins to thrive, as you say, in, in, in commercial elements and, 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 and others. Well, we mustn't forget that although there were some wars in Gibraltar, there were also wars in other parts of Europe. There were many wars in the 18th century. So living uh, in the face of a war was something that a lot of people had experience of for many years in many, many countries. And I think that what people did was that they looked for opportunities and they saw that Gibraltar offered uh, a certain number of opportunities and the British flag over Gibraltar and the fact that Queen Anne declared Gibraltar a free port made this place particularly attractive. In the shadow of the British fortress of Gibraltar is a title of the trilogy of your three books. But at what stage does it become a trilogy? Originally, it was going to be a single volume. But it became so convoluted and so long that I thought, well, nobody is going to want to read a book which looks so daunting from the outset because of the sheer number of pages. And so it started off as a single volume, then it went to two volumes, and then on looking at it, it was clear that you could look at the 18th century in terms of three different phases. So I thought, right, one phase per volume. So the first phase was up to the middle of the century. First of all, the capture of Gibraltar, then the years in limbo 
before the status of Gibraltar was finally agreed as being British under the Treaty of Utrecht of 1713, and then how that grew to the end of the time when Hargrave was here, a time when exploitation uh, of the civilian community was the order of the day. But then that was the norm, not just in Gibraltar, but elsewhere. It was part of the colonial experience. Then the second volume uh, treats of when the governors of Gibraltar took a different stance and decided to bring in much more order and control, not just over the population, but also how business was, co- was conducted in Gibraltar. So things became much more uh, controlled, uh, a much better environment in which to operate and one which attracted reliable and serious players. And this led up to the Great Siege, which was an opportunistic attempt by Spain to try and take Gibraltar by force at a time when Britain was having to dedicate its military might to fight in the Americas because you had the American uh, Revolution. That was the second volume. Then after the Great Siege you then have the period when Gibraltar starts to pick itself up and you have the Napoleonic period. So the third volume, The Phoenix Rises, covers how Gibraltar started again and how it grew and developed in spite of the yellow fever epidemic of 1804, which is just before Trafalgar. And the book ends with Trafalgar because it's more or less a 100 years since the capture of Gibraltar in 1704. Did you have an aim at the very beginning? Did that aim and what you, the story you wanted to tell, did that change? The original uh, working title was Social History, 18th Century. There was no title. The titles came later, and uh, really it was once it was clear that it was going to have to be a trilogy that I then looked very much at, uh, at individual titles which typified and which explained what that section of the 18th century was all about. So it came later. Now, one of the things that truly fascinated me about the, the first and the, the, sec, the second book, I'm yet to, to read the third book, I, I'm looking forward to that, is that you describe as your, your biggest challenge the voices of the ordinary people who lived in Gibraltar then during the, the, the 18th century. Those voices for you became very important and became essentially the essence of of the book. Oh yes, they're very much at the heart of the book. And uh, it's the ordinary people, the people who don't count particularly, who fascinate me. And it was difficult to try and see references to these individuals, but it was a question also of remembering and trying to draw the links, because a major problem when looking at these original sources is that many of them were written by English people or people who normally spoke English or people whose main language was Spanish. Now, if you had English names, the Spanish had difficulties. And so you therefore ended up with people like uh, the the name Murphy, ending up spelled M-A-R-F-I, Ma-Fi. So it's a question of interpreting. And then if you've got somebody who normally writes in English trying to interpret a Genoese name, a Spanish name, then the spelling gets mangled. So 
trying to make the connections between people whose names are spelt differently in different records but actually refer to the same person is quite a challenge. So what was the makeup of the civilian population in that period? Oh, it changed, and it changed very dramatically. So, first of all, you had a, a core of Spaniards who remained. So, you know, there was continuity in terms of the civilian population of Gibraltar. Much smaller Spanish community than when Gibraltar was Spanish prior to 1704, but, but nevertheless, there was a Spanish core of uh, people making up the civilian population. Then you had an element, a very small element of Genoese, even before 1704, and further Genoese came here. Remember that the Genoese not only came to Gibraltar, but they went to Malaga, they went to Galiz, they went to other seaports in Spain. So they had a tradition, uh, which was a seaborne tradition, uh, of going to different ports and establishing themselves in ports. So this was just part of a wider picture. So the Genoese came in growing numbers. You had a Jewish community. The Jews had not been allowed in Spain under the Spanish Inquisition. But they could come to Gibraltar. They were welcome because Morocco had to be the source of provisions for the garrison and for the people of Gibraltar, particularly when Spain refused to allow direct trade between Spain and Gibraltar of anything. So you had this Jewish element coming into the population. And when you had things like the siege of 1727, when very many Spaniards were told to leave by the then commandant, Richard Kane, and many of them did not come back at that point, after the siege, what had been predominantly a Spanish community became a predominantly Genoese and Jewish community. So you have these changes occurring over the century and different events outside Gibraltar impacted on what the makeup of the Gibraltar population was. I often think how different it was living in Gibraltar from those Spanish times moving into the, the British o o occupation of Gibraltar in 1704 and the, how those people who remained had to adapt. How did it, life change for them? Life did change. It had to change because they were now living within a fortress and they had to follow the rules of the, the fortress which were dictated by the governor. Originally, of course, the governor was not appointed by London. The governor was appointed by King Charles III of Spain, the Austrian pretender to the throne, and Prince George of Hesse-Darmstadt, who was his commander in the, in the region. The first two governors were appointed uh, by Hesse. And then after that, it was Queen Anne who started making appointments, even though Gibraltar was not British. But it was the military who were very much in command, and they were the ones who determined uh, what people could or could not do. You had needs of the part of the garrison. The garrison greatly outnumbered the civilian population, and therefore there were a lot of people needed to provide services for the troops, for the officers, for the garrison. That was what attracted people to come over here. And even British merchants came over from the UK because they found that there was a market here. And they then discovered 
that trade, important trade, between Britain and Morocco could be conducted through Gibraltar. So it led to a commercial community growing, first of all to meet the services and the needs of the garrison and the military establishment, but secondly for commercial reasons in the wider field of international trade. The governor in all this is highly important because it is the voice of authority, it is the one who decides or not. And you, you talk in your book about the acquiring of property when eventually the governor says that, yes, civilians can acquire property and so on. So th- he becomes really the, the kingpin, but there are many differences when we go from one governor to the next. Yes, n- not every governor was uh, of the same calibre. Some governors were excellent and some had the interests of the community and of the civilian population very much at heart. Others were intent on lining their pockets because that was the colonial experience. When you had colonial administrators and there were opportunities for them to inflate their salaries, they took those opportunities. Some of the governors, in fact, went really a bit too far and so you had more than one governor, three of them, actually being recalled because the the British government had lost uh, trust in them and did not consider that they were fit and proper persons to have as the governor of Gibraltar, which is really a very strong indictment and quite shocking, something very different from the sort of experience of the governors that we know in the 20th and 21st century, and of those whom we read about in the 19th century, who were very upright military men and who were persons of the utmost integrity. Not everybody in the 18th century who held the, the office of governor was a person of integrity. But in terms of property, there were radical changes introduced in the middle of the century when Humphrey Bland became governor. He set up an inquiry into property titles so that people had to prove that they had ownership, proper ownership, of the properties that they occupied. And the court determined, and the governor signed each entry individually, the government determined who owned what. That created the first register of property in Gibraltar, proper register. So people whose property had been removed at the whim of an earlier governor and given to somebody else managed to recover these uh, houses that they'd lost. Bland set that up, but there was a bias towards the Protestant community. Bland wanted Gibraltar to be primarily Protestant in character at a time when you had Catholics involved in the uprisings against the the British king, Bonnie Prince Charlie, the the uprising in 1715, and so on in 1745, which, in fact, Humphrey Bland was sent to Scotland before he came to Gibraltar. So he had experience of the Catholic and Protestant uh, conflict. For many years, after 1753, there was this predisposition towards land being owned by Protestants and Jews and and Catholics having difficulty in obtaining new property. They could inherit a property from uh, a family member 
provided that the person inheriting it had been born in Gibraltar. But sometimes they weren't born in Gibraltar. So there were these issues, and sometimes people arrived as new immigrants from elsewhere, and they had difficulty in acquiring property. So ways had to be found, and of course people were imaginative and found ways around that. And eventually, at the very, very end of the period covered by these, this trilogy, we'll find that the British government changed the rules and Catholics and Jews were finally allowed to own property legally in the time of Thomas Trigg after the Duke of Kent. What was the physical aspect of Gibraltar like then? Because we're not talking of the Gibraltar that we know today with so many buildings and so on. We really had... Did we have a main street? Did we have an Irish town? There was certainly a main street. Uh, as early as 1720, it's described as the Great Street. And the Great Street was from the area of what's today casemates up to St. Mary the Crown. So uh, there was very much a, 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 a city that, in terms of the, the actual outline, would have been familiar to us today because... This was the original street plan laid down in Moorish times and then built upon by the Spaniards. So the street plan as such did not vary to a huge degree. What did vary is that a lot of houses had gardens, people kept chickens at home, some people had a pig, some people even had a cow. So you had animals living in town. You had dung heaps in parts of the town. So it wasn't as built up as the, the town that we know now because there were lots of open spaces and plenty of land on which to build. And we even hear that some people had prickly pear bushes uh, as a, a, a hedge round their property in town range, for example. So, you know, the idea of somebody having prickly pears in town range today would, would be sort of quite surprising. But what made Gibraltar start to change in terms of its appearance was an order of Lord Hume in the 1760s. He decided, having all the houses painted white and whitewashed, which was the typical Spanish white village, was very bad for the eyesight of the troops because of the glare in the summer. So he gave everybody in Gibraltar two weeks in which to colour the facades of their properties and all the military properties were also coloured, and they were all coloured yellow or blue. Wow, that's, that's pretty amazing, really, when you think of, of the period that we, we're talking about. Indeed. So, you know, first of all, you've got this, this issue of looking after uh, the, 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 the health and the well-being of, of people who didn't matter, ordinary soldiers. And uh, secondly, the fact that uh, a governor could, uh, just in an edict a proclamation, have the whole of Gibraltar changed in its physical appearance uh, almost overnight. It, it, it leads me to the question that if it hadn't been because some of the governors allowed for the development of a local civilian community, we probably may not have had a community. Very much so, because we know that at the end of Hargrave's time as governor, he was one of the bad governors in the sense that uh, he was uh, very much money-grabbing and had very little time for the civilian community. From the military perspective, he did all that was needed 
and he looked after the security of the garrison and the fortress. So from that perspective, Gibraltar was never at risk. But because he ill-treated people, not only civilians but also military officers, there was a lot of unhappiness at the time. And many of the merchants, particularly those who come in from outside, from Britain, were thinking of leaving Gibraltar. And if it had not been that Hargrave was recalled, I think that uh, the, the Gibraltar at the time would have been very, very different. And if others in his style had then come and taken uh, office, then Gibraltar would probably have been a very different place. But it wasn't. Gibraltar was attractive because that's why, in spite of everything, people kept on coming in very large numbers and having to be turned away. Let us not forget that many governors, good governors, decided that there was a limit to the number of people that could be allowed into Gibraltar and people were not allowed in if they were vagrants or if they did not have uh, a means of support because it was then thought that they would turn to illegal practices which were not in the interest of anybody. Thank you, Richard. In the next podcast, we're going to talk a little bit more about those important voices that were the beginnings of our civilian community. Volume 1 and 2 in the Shadow of the British Fortress of Gibraltar by Richard Garcia are available at the Gibraltar Heritage Trust bookshop in the main guard. The third volume will be published later this year. This podcast series is presented and produced by me, Alice Mascareñas, as a trustee, together with Chief Executive Claire Montado for the Gibraltar Heritage Trust. Original music is by Guy Valadino. The Gibraltar Heritage Trust offices can be found at the main guard at 13 John McIntyre Square. Opening hours Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can contact the Trust on 200-42844 or check out the website gibraltarheritagetrust.org.gi Until the next time, keep a watchful eye on heritage.